0: Ecclesiastes 4, page 953 in the Pew Bibles. Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead, who had already died, are happier than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquillity than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asks, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labour. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Morning. Well, Tom has already asked us the question, what gets you up in the morning? And it's obviously something because we're all here. So congratulations. That's really good. Um, I imagine that for many of us, it's some combination of of habit and hunger. (laughs) Uh, You get up at the time you do and you run through a routine because that's just what you do. And the first thing you do once you're up has something to do with your stomach. Your stomach has something to say about it. Um, but what about beyond that? Well, what dictates what you use your breakfast energy for? Now, what drives your decisions about what to do next? Uh, whether that's during the week, whether that's on the weekend, whether that's on Sundays like today. What is it that that drives you through the day? What is that that keeps you going, mentally, emotionally, spiritually? What is it that gets you up in the morning? Well, in our passage today, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the king of Israel, shares with us what he has observed about about work and achievement. And while what he sees is incredibly disheartening and depressing, he also, for once, offers two positives, two ways of going about life and work that are better than what he has observed, that, that it's better to balance work and rest And it's better to live and work together with others. So it was worth the wait. We've gotten to something good. Uh, Now, work and achievement are new topics for our teacher, for the King of Israel. Uh, After introducing himself back in chapter 1, he quickly moved on to his guiding question uh, through the book, which Tom mentioned earlier. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? That's what he asks. And since then, he's proceeded to analyse Several possible answers, like a scientist going about his experiments. He's made wisdom his work to see if that is worth doing. Then he made pleasure his work, then madness and folly. And while his quest continues, he's already given away the results of this whole research project. Back in chapter 1, verse 14, he writes, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. Are chasing after the wind. So all the work that people can set their minds towards, everything people can put their effort into has come under scrutiny, and this is the verdict. It's all meaningless, vapour, breath, pfft, of temporary value only. We can enjoy doing work within our life is the message of the teacher. We can enjoy it as a good gift from God, but that's where the value of work and effort ends. Because everything we do will decay and disappear like dust after our death. And so if this is the case, then why do we get out of bed in the morning? Why do people work? What motivates us to do what we do? To keep doing what we're doing? What motivates us to look for new opportunities? What helps us to make plans for progress and achievement as we live lives under the sun in this fallen world? Well, people around us might offer lots of different answers publicly about why they pursue what they do. But based on his research, the teacher tells us that our motivation comes down to one thing, the sinful way we see each other. He summarises what he's seen in chapter 4, verse 4. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is Meaningless are chasing after the wind. So this is his conclusion as he once more witnesses work in this fallen world. All work, all achievement in this fallen world are driven by people's envy, by jealousy, by our desire to keep up with the Joneses. And it's fascinating that (laughs) that the teacher's observation among the people of his time is so like ours. It's like people then, we too are very easily competitive. Comparison is second nature to us. As we go about life in this world, we build a picture of success based on what we see in each other, on the achievements of others in whatever category of life they might be. Maybe we see people's career advancement. Maybe we see their comfort. Maybe we see their social status. And we build a picture of what we want to be. We set our hearts on that picture and then we make our choices, large and small, based on reaching that picture, what it's going to take to be like those other people, be better than those other people. And that's what gets us out of bed in the morning and we work towards it. In the eyes of the teacher, this is our our mixed and possibly only motivation for work in this fallen world. We might be pretty good at repackaging it, reinterpreting it, as something positive, but the teacher calls it what it is, wanting to be like others, to be better than others. And so what do we do when we recognise the the truth of what he says about humanity? What do we do when we recognise some of that in ourselves? Well, the teacher shows us two alternatives at opposite ends of the spectrum. Look with me at verse 5. He says, "'Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves.'" better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. So as we can see, his descriptions are all about what we do with our hands. Now, this is a helpful way of describing our work because how we use our hands is usually related to our work in some way. If I tell you that my hands are, I have my hands full, what do I mean? Yeah, I'm at, I'm at full capacity. I can't do anything more than what I'm doing right now. My hands are full. And if I tell you that I need a hand, then I'm asking for your help to, uh, with something that I'm working on. And so this is how the teacher describes the ways that we could go about work and life by talking about our hands. And we could go through life with folded hands, also known as laziness. Uh, the thinking goes that if, if work is always motivated to some degree by, by sin, by envy, then don't work at all. Why take the risk? Just take it easy. Kick back and relax. Put your hands behind your head. This is what folded hands is like. And it's attractive. Some school leavers and 20-somethings aspire to live this way, delaying, if possible, the responsibility of, of providing for yourself. But as good as it sounds, it's foolish. It leads to ruin. It's foolish because if your hands are folded, then they're empty. No work means no way of providing even basic needs for yourself or others. It's draining what you have until there's nothing left. Um, Proverbs echoes this sad truth in chapter 6, verse 10 and 11, which says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. That's folded hands, laziness. It's not the solution. And the alternative to the folded hands is two handfuls with toil. Unlike folded hands, two handfuls means lots of work. And this too is attractive. It seems wise to work harder, to operate at full capacity, to take every opportunity to do more work, to maximise our resources. And our world appears to encourage us in this because being endlessly busy is a badge of honor. Even if we're not busy, we're meant to look busy or at least sound busy. so often when someone asks me, how are you going? My almost instant response is busy. Usually I say that not because I'm actually at full capacity, but I feel like I should be. I feel like I'm meant to be busy at full capacity all the time. Because the logic goes that if we work harder, then we'll be more satisfied by getting more done, and we'll also have more to show for it so we'll reach our goal sooner. And then after we reach our goal, then we'll be satisfied and content with no need to envy anyone. And then we can switch from two hands full to folded hands, doing the things that we want, catching up on the things that we've missed, enjoying the life that we've worked so hard for. That's the dream, isn't it? But the teacher finds that working like this, living with this two-hands mindset, is a chasing after the wind. And he describes what he has seen of of the futility of this and the frustration of this way of life in verse 8. He writes, There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. This man shows us that we can't just switch on contentment when we reach our goal. Contentment remains elusive unless our heart is changed, changed by God through the work of his spirit. If we're motivated to work by envy and jealousy, then we're just going to find another Jones to keep up with, another picture of success, another achievement to chase after, and on and on it goes. The suggestion of these verses is that contentment doesn't come through hard work, through this two-hands-full living. No, contentment is cultivated by seeing something better, seeing the good pattern of life and work that is given by God. And the teacher shares this picture with us as the the better way at the start of verse 6. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Now what he's describing here is a pattern that that keeps work and rest in in healthy balance. It's the work-life balance that we're always told about. It's not the always resting with folded hands that ends in ruin. It's not the always working with two hands full that is chasing after the wind. And it's not the mix that we often see of lurching from one extreme to the other, working to the point of physical, mental, or relational breakdown, and then being forced to rest to deal with the consequences. And what the teacher describes is a <clears throat> what the teacher describes is a way of working that sees the importance of both work and rest and integrates them together in life. It's a way of life that fills one hand with work using God-given skills, time, and energy to do good, to provide for yourself and others, but that leaves one hand free for tranquility, for enjoying life, for sharing in relationships, for resting. Now, there's nothing revolutionary about this. There's nothing revolutionary about this in Scripture. This, this balanced pattern has been knitted by God into the fabric of creation. It's been affirmed by God in his law and it's recognized as necessary by experts even now but that doesn't make it easy to live out then as now envy is still so common and contentment is so rare and so hard to maintain but this is the godward posture that we're encouraged to seek and to ask for and to adopt because it's better And so this is the first better than about life and work. It's better to balance work and rest in healthy balance. Balancing work and rest is better than ruinous laziness. And it's better than chasing after the wind of envy because balancing leads to satisfaction. Balancing work and rest is better for the worker. It's better for the person going through life with this attitude. And because as the writer of Proverbs says in chapter 14, verse 30, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. And as we see in the verses that follow back in Ecclesiastes, bouncing work and rest is also better for others, for each other, which leads us to the second better than about life and work in this chapter, that it's better to live and work together with others. As we've touched on before, verses 8 and 9 describe the result of of two hands full living. Uh, The teacher describes for us a man who is all alone, uh, maybe because he's too busy to have any friends or any relationships, maybe because his work ethic has destroyed any friendships or relationships he might have had. We find this man at the point where he pauses from his busyness to reflect on his wealth and his independence, and he asks himself, What is the point of working so hard? Who am I doing this for? I can't enjoy it. Nobody else can enjoy it either. What is the point? And this is the realisation that comes at the end of so many pursuits in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's heartbreaking to see this endlessly working, hopelessly dissatisfied individual. But that is what we expect to see in our society, made up as it is of endlessly working, hopelessly dissatisfied individuals like him. And based on this picture, the teacher leads us to our second better than statement about work and achievement. Uh, Look with me from verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. That's a beautiful passage, isn't it? Uh, You might have heard it read at weddings, maybe even at your wedding. And there's something wonderful about it being read and applied in the context of marriage, this this picture of of partnership. But it might come as a surprise to us that the reason why two are better than one given by the teacher has very little to do with marriage. Uh, He says that two are better than one. Why? Because they have a good return for their labour. In other words... Two people working together provides a financial or economic benefit over one person working alone. Now, I'm not sure that that's a common reason for people to get married, but you never know. Uh, Now, this benefit of two over one is then described by tracing events that might happen to to business partners on a journey out on the open road. Uh, If there are two on a treacherous journey, they'll be better off physically and financially. One can help the other when they fall down instead of remaining helpless and at risk. On cold nights in the wilderness, they can keep each other warm rather than freezing alone. And when attacked by animals or thieves, together they have a better chance of survival. And if having two on that journey is better than one, then better again is three, and so on. Uh, This picture of journeying through through life with others uh, does suggest something beyond just financial concerns. It tells us that the teacher has something more fundamental and important to say about the way we relate to one another. He wants to affirm the good of seeking and being in relationship with others, that it is good when people work together for mutual benefit. It is good when people desire the well-being of others, not just their own. The teacher wants to affirm the countercultural good of friendship as against the individualism of our fallen world. Now, within chapter 4, two are better than one stands in contrast to, to our en- endless envy and jealousy. It encourages us to see people differently, as people to love, not as rivals. As people travel through life, uh, we don't just chase after others, compare ourselves with others. We go through life with others. And as the journey explanation shows us, we're better equipped to go through life if we do it together. We're better prepared to go through the challenges of life if we do it together with others, with people who have a shared interest in the well-being of one another, with friends and each of us need people like this, who will look out for us, who will go through life together with us. Friends who will, who will help us when we're down, who will share with us, who will listen to us. Friends who will speak the truth in love to us, even when that's difficult. Um, as the writer of Proverbs writes in chapter 27, verse 9, um, perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, And the pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. This is good. These are the sort of relationships that we want, that we need. These are the sorts of relationships that God generously gives us out of His goodness and kindness. These are the sort of relationships that we want to offer to others. Now, maybe we long for a a relationship like that, a friendship like that, people to go through life together with. And there would be many Australians who would join us in longing for that kind of friendship. A recent national survey showed that one in four Australians experience loneliness, don't have close friends that they can rely on. This is difficult for us. And for some of us, maybe we have had a friend like that or had friends like that. Maybe we had a husband or a wife to go through life with in the past and it might be hard for us to think about friendship beyond them. Friendships like the ones described in these verses are hard to find. They're hard to find in our fallen world. They're hard to find in our individualistic society among increasingly disconnected and lonely people. Friendships are hard to find when so many of us have our hands full. But even so, if two are better than one, then we need to seek them out, freeing ourselves up so we can befriend others and be friends to others around us for their good and so that they might know the God who gives such precious gifts as as friendship that gives us one another to go through life with. Now, as we wrap up, one thing I'm thankful for each, each Sunday is the friendship that I get to see at church. Uh, so often I hear of people being welcomed warmly from the moment they step through the door and sometimes even before they've stepped through the door. I see people who have nothing in common serving alongside each other, encouraging each other, making plans to catch up during the week so that they can share more of life together. And even during the weekend growth groups, I see and hear about the deep relationships, the trust, the openness, the prayerfulness that exists between people here. This is a place where friendships begin and grow, and that's wonderful. We're not perfect, we're not all best friends, we're not free from individualism or envy or jealousy, but the things that we see. Are what our church is meant to be like, different from the individualism, envy and jealousy of our world, different because of God's work in us and among us, bringing us together, helping us to love one another because of the love that has been shown to us in Christ, helping us to have a relationship with God and with each other through Christ so that we might share in the joys and struggles of life together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And what a gift that is. Let me lead us in prayer. Our gracious God, we humbly thank you for all your gifts so freely given to us, for life and health and safety, for power to work, leisure to rest, and for all that is beautiful in creation and human life. And above all, we praise you for our Saviour, Jesus Christ, for his death and resurrection, for the gift of your spirit and for the hope of sharing together in your glory. Please fill our hearts with all joy and peace in believing through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.